Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest today is my friend, Ricky Goldenberg. You can connect with Ricky at her website, rickygoldenberg.com, her LinkedIn page, which is her name, of course, Ricky Goldenberg, and her Instagram at Ricky underscore Goldenberg. And additionally, I always donate to and raise awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice. And Ricky has selected the organization, The Trevor Project. So please join me in donating for a really meaningful cause. In the coaching and leadership development space, I think it's really common. One of the pitfalls is that people take themselves too seriously. And my favorite thing about Ricky is the joy and silliness and play that she brings into coaching and leadership development. So there's definitely a flavor of that in this conversation. I love the way that she deconstructs popular beliefs such as imposter syndrome and motivation and discipline, things that are spoken about as qualities that we need to cultivate and work hard at. And Ricky really eloquently explains why those are total BS. That's in the title of this episode. And perhaps the stickiest point of this conversation for me is around what makes successful leaders. And it's not empathy. It's not intelligence. It's not any particular quality. The number one attribute of strong leaders is self-awareness. And so Ricky spends a lot of this conversation talking about what constitutes good self-awareness. If we can become self-aware, we therefore understand ourselves and others better And it makes us more effective as leaders. It makes us more dynamic at understanding people, which is really what leadership is all about. It's about understanding and leading people. Ricky is such a delight of a person. I think that as soon as you hear her voice, you're going to resonate with her vibes. I certainly do. I've had the pleasure of knowing her for the past two years. And so I will let Ricky take it from here. With all that said, let's settle in, take a deep breath. And enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Ricky Goldenberg. Ricky, it is so great to have you on the podcast. Welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Thanks for having me. (laughs) I'm wondering, actually, if we could start with how you ended up on this podcast in the first place. What was, how, why are you here right now? (laughs) Oh, because I just got real vulnerable with you over a text message. (laughs) (laughs) Could you, could you share what that was? Yes. There's, so, I learned a lot from you in your reach out there. I think it's like, it, it really made my day when it happened and it touched me. So I, I would love to share uh, what that was and start the conversation this way. Cool. Do you want me to tell you what I did? Yes. I love it. So, because we've known each other for, it must be like a year now, right? Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about that. I think it's been about a year because we're part of this coaching mastermind group. And we met up in New York. And so we'd had all these conversations and then you've been working on this podcast and we've had some other conversations throughout this time. And at some point I was like, I want to be on the podcast. That's a cool podcast. 
he has so many cool people on there and they're talking about so many interesting things. And I was feeling really self-conscious because we know each other, you know, like we, we can text each other. And I was like, but he's like not asking me to be on the podcast. I was like, well, maybe he like doesn't really want me or like, maybe he thinks I wouldn't be a good participant or like, you know, he's probably really busy. He's got lots of people. And so I was telling myself this whole terrible narrative that was like, not very kind to myself. And at some point I just was like, wait, 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 literally you work on stuff like this with your clients. You should also do these things. And so at some point I just awkwardly sent you a very vulnerable text message that basically (laughs) said, I want to be on your podcast and it's okay if you don't want me to be, I gave you like an out. (laughs) <laughs> but I basically, <laughs> because I had this whole moment that I was like, it might not be that you don't want me on the podcast. Maybe you just haven't thought about me for it yet. Maybe you have thought about me, but you're totally overbooked and you're busy and lots of people want to be on your podcast. And I just had this moment that I was deciding that because you hadn't actively asked me that I was being told something. And I was like, how would I let him tell me that directly if he doesn't want me on the podcast? So I just sent you a really awkward text message with a lot of opportunities to say no to me. And I told myself that if you said no, that was totally fine. But now at least I knew. And you did not say no, because that's why, because now I'm here. <laughs> and now we're recording right now. So I did not say no. Big, big spoiler, spoiler alert for all the listeners. She's here right now. I didn't say no. But in all seriousness, I really did appreciate that because there's, there's so many good things about that. So you asked for what you wanted. That's a practice that I want to be in all the time. If I know I want something, being willing to ask for it is such an incredible skill. And another gift for me is I had the opportunity. I suck at saying no. So I actually did sit with it. I don't know if you remember. It took a while to answer your text message. I, I waited until the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And I said, I am going to actually check in with myself and say, do I want Ricky to be on this podcast? Yes or no. And I get to practice saying no, because I suck at saying no, if I want to say no. Mm-hmm. And I did not. So it was it was a beautiful exercise. And I do have lots of guests come on the show. I have to get better at saying no at this point, because at first it was hard to get people to come on. And now I, I get to be a little bit more selective. And you have fit the the criteria to be on the show. I'm so glad that you're here. And it was, it was neat to start the podcast in this way. Yeah. So the question that I usually start every interview with, and now we, we can get into the, uh, the typical beginning on-ramp of the conversation. <laughs> Can't wait. We both forget that I've asked you before, so we get to live it all over again. And I have asked you in the past, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? And now you get a a round two shot to answer it, but this time recorded. So Ricky, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Oh my gosh. You did ask me this question. That's beautiful. Okay. Dinner table. Got to paint the scene, which is that we had a round table, which actually, by the way, makes me, I still really love round tables and have frequently been upset that I, that where my current situation, I can't fit a round table where we would be seated because I have this, now I have this affinity towards round tables because you can see everyone. There's less mm-hmm. sort of delineation. Well, we had this round table. It was like a mid-century modern tulip style Formica top, like fake wood top in the corner of our kitchen. So we ate in our kitchen, not in our dining room. We had both. That's very fancy. Yeah. And we all had assigned seats. 
So I know exactly where I sat and my family is like this. They still have assigned seats anywhere they've ever lived. I'm used to the idea of having assigned seats. My partner's family does not have assigned seats. So he thinks it's really strange. Chaos, man. What the hell? It's chaos. I'm like, where am I supposed (laughs) to sit? I don't understand. I'm still confused. But in this, in this dining situation, it was, I sat across from my sister. My mom sat to my right. My dad sat to my left. Somehow the trash can was there, which I always like to remember that the trash can was right there next to me, just in case. And I was seated in the position that's like clearly for youngest, which was easiest to get up from the table. So like, I was always the one that had to like hop up and get things in terms of, so that's setting. I had to give you the setting so that you understood. Also, you have to assume that everything was like for Micah and like had some brown accents from like an old kitchen that had never been updated. And the subject matter It's sort of dependent. I think we talked about this last time, which was that I don't remember when I was younger having meals at the table. It's more as I aged and my dad worked a lot. So he often wasn't there at the table because he was still working or he would come and sort of, we would be in open conversation. And it was, I still remember like the time my mom tried to introduce the idea of like, what's one thing that happened to you today that you're grateful for? And I was like, we're not tradition people. I don't have anything to say. But yeah, I just have like these very fond memories of sitting around this round table, always with like strong eye contact with my sister and, you know, my dad's Ukrainian. So there was always these certain foods that we had at the dining room table that was specific that I didn't realize were strange foods until I went to college and was like, you guys don't have pickles at every meal. (laughs) This is so weird. (laughs) But yeah, I think that's, that's kind of what it was like. Well, thank you for the the beautiful visual uh, illustration of, of what it looked like, really setting the context of where you were sitting, what the food was like, what the conversation was like. Feels like a, a full download into what the dinner experience was when you were younger. And another come from that I have with that question is what was young Ricky like? What were what were you like as a child? And maybe if you if you want to extend this into where you are now, what do you think brought you into the field of coaching and wanting to understand human behavior and et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So I was, I, which is, I was a total ham. Like I was <laughs> like such a hammy kid. A lot of times when I was younger, I'm very aware of the fact that I used to, instead of eating, would get up and do like an entire performance for my family, which included like, I was either directing a play of imaginary creatures that were not there and, or I was part of the play. There's a whole storyline that when I was quite young, I used to just stand up in my high chair, slap my hands together and dive onto the table. And the only <laughs> warning you got was that I slapped my hands together first. And like everyone had to drop and catch like trust fall exercises nonstop. And I was, I was definitely a performer. So when I think about even from a young age, like the first things I did was, you know, soccer, my town was big on soccer and my dad's Ukrainian. So soccer, come on. And I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> and then very quickly, I switched into things like rhythmic gymnastics, which is like a very Russian Eastern European sport, but it's you on your own in front of people. And that kind of was a continuation actually. So I did like in terms of my extracurriculars, and I think it gives you a little of information about me, which is that I do rhythmic gymnastics. I do ballroom dancing I um, did speech and debate, which is like a very fun thing if people haven't heard about it, but I did that for a long time. I coached it too. 
And so a lot of the activities that I did was you kind of have to stand on your own two feet, either yourself or maybe with a partner and you're going to perform and you're going to be judged and you're going to receive judgment rating response. I will say that builds a lot of grit and resilience from a pretty young age because you're used to just going out by yourself, having to do something and then getting told really quickly, like you weren't that great at it. (laughs) Awesome. So that, that was what I was doing when I was younger. I was always like a super ham the joke, my speech and debate coach called, she called me the social butterfly. Cause every time we went to a competition, I was friends with everybody and sort of had a great time and that continued. So when I went off to college, I studied math and theater. So again, Ukrainian mm-hmm. father. So really loved math, really loved theater. That was a good reason to sort of be able to do theater was to also be doing math because it's kind of like, what are you going to do with a theater degree? Which was the question that he had. Great question. I mean, complicated. And so I had started there, but I also, because I did theater, I love human psychology, right? Like I love spending time and thinking about why people do things and how people interact with each other and how they're interconnected and what's your motivation and what pushes you forward, whether it's the character or the actor themselves. And so even in theater, I really quickly transferred out of acting. I wasn't that great at it and I was aware of it into directing and that I did really, really love and being able to adapt information, sort of do those things. And when I first graduated from school, I had this very strange, lengthy, complicated career, which was I started in finance because I had this math background. And then after a while, I was in like a finance startup. And then I was trying to figure out what I wanted next. And I worked with a coach. And that was really where the transition happened. I was really fortunate that I knew this coach because she had worked with my sister and she'd worked with my sister's friend. And so she came recommended word of mouth. And when we worked together, it was just this beautiful experience. Like I, it was the first time I was probably like 24 or 25. And it was probably the first time that I had worked with someone who was just completely on my side and had no opinion of what I did next. You know, previously the people that I would ask for advice from were my parents or my sister or my friends. And all these individuals have their own preconceived notions of who I am or what I look like or who I should be or what I'd be good at. And working with a coach was this wide opening feeling of this recognition that it's actually more about me and what I want. And going through that process was pretty transformational for me. And the coach actually asked if I wanted to work with her, but I was quite young at the time. And I was like, I need time to build experience. And so I spent the next, I guess like nine or 10 years building a pretty badass career between working in design and project management, design research, consulting, healthcare startups before I started my coaching business. And that was like coming home. Like it, it was this thing that had always sat that I knew I wanted to do. And almost every time that I was going to make a transition, I'd have this moment that I'd say, oh, should I be coaching? And it just never was the right time, either because of financial reason, reasons or just fear or ego getting the best of me because I had another opportunity that gave me a fancier title at a fancier company that was seemingly impressive. So it took it took a while to get there, but now I'm there. Mm-hmm. Why did you, when you're 24 or 25, mm-hmm. it's easy to gloss over and say, yeah, I worked with a coach. It was transformational, but why, why did you decide that it was time to reach out to a coach in the first place? And and why was it transformational for you? Like, what did, what did you learn about yourself? Mm, okay. So part of the reason why I reached out was because I had been working in finance 
I had also, before I became a math major, I was also an econ major and had been sitting, I, I was used to sitting in a room and being one of the only women in the room. Hmm. Cause that happens when you're a math econ major and you're a woman. And so when I first moved into finance, at some point I realized I don't really want to be the only woman in the room. I don't really want to be constantly confused with administrative support. I got called baby more times than I would like to admit. And a lot of just really unkind behavior towards being a woman who also happens to have a pretty young face. Like I have a young face. I know this about myself. And that really impacted my ability within the financial space. And at some point I realized I don't care enough about finance to also want to like make my mark here. I think there was this piece of me that would have stayed longer in that space if I was like really excited about finance and wanted to sort of show them who's boss. Cause like, I love a bit of that, but at some point I was like, I don't care enough about finance for this. And that turned into also like, what should I do? And I had gotten laid off, which was such a hard thing to talk about because I feel like in on one hand, amazing, like incredible. On the other hand, really hard. It's really hard to go through that. You have a lot of questions around your self-worth. If you're even good at things, there's a lot of self-blame that comes up. There's a lot of questioning of capacity of your own intelligence of who am I as an adult in the adult world. And while I was in that space, that was when I was like really floundering, really felt unsure, didn't understand what was available to me. And so that's when I decided to work with a coach. I don't think I would have worked with a coach if I didn't know someone who had worked with a coach. Mm-hmm. And I think that's common. I actually hear that a lot. Like once someone's worked with a it's kind of it's kind of like when you know someone who goes to therapy and they're like, we should all be in therapy. <laughs> it's sort of which is I love therapy. I love recommending it. But it's sort of the same with coaching that I think I was just really fortunate that I was in a space that I knew other people who had worked with a coach and recommended that decision. So that was how I ended up getting to work with her. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. Mm-hmm. In terms of it being transformational, I, yeah, I stand by. It's just the first time in my life that I was with someone who the conversation was centered on me, my own desires, my own expectations. And it wasn't like, oh, you should be this. You know, she didn't sit down and give me like a formula, but it had a lot of activities and conversation and discussion. And I mean, I literally, still would reach out to her every couple of years when I was going through a transition and sort of just check in with her. And she's been kind of along my journey all the way through my first kid. Like it was, you know, she just really has been part of that. And so, yeah, I, I, does this answer your question? I'm going on a weird tangent in my own little brain right there. I think you're making perfect sense and you're, you're addressing both of my questions in a, a very coherent, easy to follow way. So yeah, I mean, I sometimes it's easy to hear the word transformation and think that something grandiose had had to have happened, but it's really it sounds like she was an ally for you, someone who was able to see you in in all of who you were without any preconceived notion of this is who you should be or this is how I am seeing you. Like really was able to be there for you, no agenda able to reflect things back to you and helped you in some way get clarity on what you wanted in a way that someone hadn't done that before as well many well-meaning parents and siblings and friends know it's it's hard to just hold space for someone to be objective when you care when you're personally invested 
in the outcomes in their life. So, yeah. uh, and uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say the other thing about it that was really particularly beautiful and helpful was that it also, she was, it, it was in that moment in time, right? So she understood my past and sort of how I had reached where I got, but it was, it was recognizing who I was and where I was and what I wanted to be in that moment in time, which is really difficult if you think about parents, right? Like my, my parents knew me since I was this little larva thing. And so a lot of the narratives and the stories that they still tell to this day are around what I was like as a seven-year-old. And like what I was like as a seven-year-old was super obsessed with trying to become James Bond. I am not James Bond. It has not happened. And like, I'm bummed about it, minus some of the concerns around the way he treats women. But it <laughs> was like, you know, it's like, I don't have the same goals. I don't need to be an international man of mystery. And so it, it, that's a really difficult thing. I think for parents now as a parent myself, it's like, that's a really tricky thing to recognize that who, who I was, those are still for formational and that's formational information, but it doesn't necessarily need to impact the way that I make a future decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was part of like the beauty in that moment too. Awesome. Well, I, I would love to talk about, hmm, there, there's a couple of different threads that are really interesting to me. I guess one is that I understand you to be an introvert or someone who identifies more towards I recharge by being alone. And in some ways, being someone who's a performer is you're a one-to-many type of, it, that's a one-to-many type of expression. And a lot of what you spoke to was yes, there's lots of attention on me, but I'm in my own world in some way or with a partner. And so there's, it's a more controlled type of environment. But I, I'm just wondering what that energetically, what has it been like to be someone who both wants lots of attention and also might be overstimulated by too much going on in a contained environment? It's actually you you highlighted a couple of things in there that I thought that I thought were really interesting, which is this idea of the one to many. And that holds still. So I I think about this a lot. So yes, introversion, the way that I like re-get all of my energy is from nobody talking to me. Like what was it yesterday that I probably spent an exorbitant amount of time just watching Bones, which is a terrible television show, but it's fantastic when you don't want to do anything. But it's true and and now, as I, as I've gotten older, it's this realization. I, I talk about this pretty openly sometimes with folks, which is that I'm great one-to-one. -one. I feel really safe and secure. I can build really beautiful partnership, which is why I love coaching. And I'm great one-to-many. Hand me a microphone. I'll happily MC your wedding. I'll happily give a talk. No issue. Um, my main area of discomfort is actually in that space of like three to eight people. I actually really struggle in that space because and energy wise, I'm trying to control. Like it, it doesn't make any sense. So when I'm in this big crowd, some people are not going to be paying attention. They're going to be on their phone. They're going to be texting. They're going to be on Instagram. That's fine. I don't care. As long as I got some portion of the group with me and I'm still happy with what I'm delivering, no problem. In one-to-one, -one, I can read you, right? I can like feed you back. We can sort of connect with each other and move these things. In this interim group, energetically is one of the most difficult environments for my, for me, because I spend so much time in this space of like, am I talking too much? Am I not talking enough? Did that person get to talk? Has this person been able to participate? Are they having a good time? And I really go into this weird control thing that's 
I see it in myself. I don't, I don't love being in the space in any capacity actually. And I think that has to do with like my energy levels. When I'm in this one-to-many group, you know, I'll, I'll go and I'll do it and I can go to a big party and I can run stuff just as long as I get to go home and like get on the train, you know, I'll, I'll like be on the train just like in my little zone, just completely it wrapped up in some kind of like fantasy novel and, or in one-to-one, you know, I can spend some of my days I'm in six hours of coaching. And for some people, I think that'd be really exhausting for me. I walk away feeling amazing on a day like that. Cause it's just like, I get to basically really drop in and be very close with people and hold beautiful space for them and really get to listen and be with them. It's that in-between space that I've learned over time is really difficult for me. And, you know, it is, it's how you sort of regain energy. And I, I'm still a freaking ham, right? Like I can still like be really personable and warm and all those things. It's just what happens afterwards. And I need to really like stay very still mm-hmm. afterwards and just rest. It resonates a lot with me. I, especially that when you are describing the, the kind of inner dialogue that you're experiencing when there's it, like socially many mouths to feed. It's like, is this person talking enough? Am I talking enough? Am I not talking enough? Is it, it can definitely become a, a little bit of a mess inside for me. And yeah, the sit for me, the six to eight person range usually starts to tip me into this place of, I get a little bit overstimulated. And then mm. if you, if you then lay that on top of maybe going into a bar or going into a, an area that's really noisy, I find myself having a really hard time to paying attention in, in any meaningful way. And I used to think that something was wrong with me for that, but it's been really helpful to learn that it's really common and we all need to pay attention to how we align energetically, right? There's so, there's so many different types and it's a spectrum. I, I, I ask this in a way that implies it's a binary, like introvert or extrovert, and we're all on a spectrum. So that's been oh, yeah. a big learning for me as well. And yeah, I think it's it's easy to brush past that. Uh, like this seems it seems simple because we've been looking at this in ourselves for a long time. But when I first learned that there are people with different types of energy and there isn't a good way or a bad way, it it, it literally changed my life to learn that. Yeah, I think that um, I still wrestle with it because there's this feeling of those who are extroverted ultimately have kind of a leg up because they are able, because they're energized by being around people, they function really well in work environments and spaces that they have to sort of be uncomfortable. And so I still struggle with it now as a human being, because sometimes when I want to do something, I have to spend time with myself and recognize, am I avoiding that thing because I'm scared to do that thing because it's a growth thing? Or am I avoiding that thing? Because like, I'm a freaking introvert and I don't want to. And like, that's not the way that I want to participate in this world. And so I think it's it's just really tricky. And also I've been really lucky. There was a woman I worked with who was a hard extrovert, like off the chart extrovert. And I think getting to see her in action, because we work together, we're friends. She's an amazing human being, but getting to see her in action, seeing what that the other side looks like, like a strong extrovert and learning like what she struggles with 
was really interesting for me because I think I had spent a lot of time recognizing and sort of saying like, oh, you know, it's me, like being an introvert, it's going to hold me back. Oh, I got to really push against it. And it was so interesting to get to spend time with someone who's off the charts in terms of extroversion and the struggles that she faces, which are really different than what I face. And I think that that was incredibly eye-opening to basically start to learn you know, grass is greener, right? It's like, we always think that this other side is easier. And, and I learned a lot through that actually. What was more challenging for her? Was it, you know, like going back to her computer and getting behind the scenes types of things done that, that type of deal? No, well, sometimes, but actually one of the things that she really struggled with was that, you know, she, the type of work she did required a lot of synthesis and kind of group work. And she was very aware that because she could take up that space and was really excited by that Mm. space that sometimes she would get feedback or she'd be aware that people weren't getting their information in as well because she was kind of using up all the space. And then she actually wasn't getting to get really good diversified thought because Mm. she was running the show and taking over too much control. And so it was, it was actually hindering the quality of her work product because she, she had a hard time allowing for quiet, allowing for silence, allowing for people to get engaged. And so she had all these different methodologies that she would leverage in order to tell people this about herself, first of all, so that people knew, please interrupt me. Like, I will not be offended if you interrupt me. And I need to be interrupted. Actually, if you don't interrupt Mm -hmm. me, I will just keep talking. And Mm -hmm. so knowing that you felt really comfortable interrupting her because you knew she wanted you to. And so she got really good at sort of explicitly stating, this is something I'm working on, but please like participate, please interrupt me, please talk over me. I'm aware that I kind of can bring this sort of energy into the conversation. And just knowing that, that that was something that she struggled with because she did, she had a hard time being able to really listen and not start thinking ahead and getting excited and making things like, which Granted, this is also what makes her incredibly successful and a really talented individual. You know, it's a superpower in many ways, but she also wrestled with how do I still also engage additional thought? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you said at one point, I don't know if we were recording yet, but that you would be able to get on a soapbox about a lot of things. So I want to I want to just plant the seed that if there's any topics that come up that you want to get on a soapbox about, I'll tell means. you. I'll bring let's, my let's soapbox. Bring it in. I love a and, soapbox. And something that I have been, it's been lingering in the back of my mind a little bit is that I, while I haven't explicitly been coached by you, I don't think that we've ever done a session or booked a time where I was a client and you were a coach. But what I have done with you is have conversations where I have been opening up to you. You have been holding some sort of space for me. And I know that holding space can both be a natural skill and also a a skill that you've really refined and worked on. And there's probably so many different things that go into how you are able to show up present, cued into what's happening to the person that's talking to you. Like, how do you, how do you look at the way that you show up present for a conversation? What contributes to the way that you're able to be attuned. I, I can feel it even in this moment right now that energetically that you're like, you're right here with me. So I guess a simple way of putting it is what's the, what's that all about? How are you able to do that? I, 
So recently I was doing like a value exercise, you know, one of the regular value exercises. And the one that always comes up for me is curiosity. Mm. Like that's one of my leading things. And so it's really, so I've always been good at holding space. I mean, there's this joke, there's this joke, like among my friends that spend 20 minutes with Ricky and you're going to end up telling her your secrets. And it's because, you know, and a lot of people say it's because I'm, I'm, I can be quite stubborn and quite aggressive, but when I'm talking to someone who I don't know or someone who I do know, and you're starting to share information with me, I've been told that there's not a lot of judgment that comes off me. It's different if we're good friends and I'm being a jerk and like you're talking about your ex that you're thinking about getting back together with. I'm going to have some opinions there. But when it comes to like having open dialogue with someone, my curiosity is really, really strong, right? And also the realization that we're, we're very different from each other as human beings. And there's still similarities, of course, and maybe you'll say something that makes me think of someone else. But I also am really aware that like, you don't want me to be thinking about someone else when I'm with you. You don't want me to tell you, oh, you remind me of so-and-so. Cause like who love, no one loves that. Like I freaking hate it when someone will be like, you know, you're just like, and they like reference someone from some television show. Who's a character that's like, not even that likable. I'm like, cool, cool, cool. Thanks. can't <laughs> wait to do something with that. And so I think a lot of it comes from curiosity. I'm just so interested in other individuals. And then also a lot of it comes with just like being observant and being able to, and wanting to match energy and wanting to create comfort and also like a lot of weirdness. I'm very aware. I tell people a lot, if they want to work with me, that I'm a little odd and that like, we're going to get weird together. Like, it's not going to always be very serious. Like it's going to be funny. It's going to be strange. We're going to find humor in these uncomfortable things. And so you know, some of it, some of the ways that I hold space now has shifted from working in coaching and getting certified as a coach. But a lot of that work is less about the holding of the space and the more about what do I do in the space. And so I've gotten much better. You know, we all want to give advice. We all want to jump into ideas. We all want to save people. And so that's been the biggest work that I've had to do in terms of holding space is recognizing that nine times out of 10, my advice is really crappy for that person. Like they actually don't really want my advice. They just need me to listen to them and help them figure out what they want. Because nine times out of 10, I don't have all the context. I don't have all the information. They have a lot more of it. And so that's more of the work that I've done in terms of holding space is trying to figure out how to hold it in a really honest, open, without like me putting my own stamp on it. Um, But yeah, curiosity and just like real joy in getting to really listen to someone. Like it's just, you know, for, I spent like six or seven years working as a suicide prevention counselor and in the LGBTQ space. And I got to talk to some just incredible kids that just were so beautiful and amazing and just weren't getting that space. And it's just such a freaking honor when someone is open to sharing their stories or their secrets or their desires or their wishes. And I just like, oh my gosh, it's such a freaking gift. Like, you know, when people make the joke, oh, you talk to Ricky for 20 minutes, you'll tell your secrets. I'm so honored when I talk to someone and they're going to tell me their secrets. And like, I'm not telling anyone your secret. I'm following confidentiality rules without even having to set up confidentiality with you. But like, I, I just like, oh, it's such a, it's such a freaking gift that someone would give this information to me and find security and safety in that conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I find it to be really sacred as well that if I'm a trusted mm. confidant and, and someone is like, I, I don't use that word lightly, sacred, that someone would be willing to open up to me or, or say, I mean, several times someone has said to me, I have never told anyone that before. And I do not at all take that lightly. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really big deal. And I imagine in the crisis prevention work that you did for, for six or seven years that the, the gift was something that they in, in no way had in their life. Like that's one of the reasons maybe that they were in that position was that they just didn't feel that they were really seen and heard. And, yeah. and to be able to just sit there with someone and not feel, I don't know, judged or mm-hmm. that something's wrong with you is in my opinion that that's most of what good space holding is and and i have to i have the same work as you with regard Mm. to i fancy myself someone who's got all the good answers and fancy advice and can see you know 20 steps ahead and and Mm -hmm. i know where this is going and (laughs) you're human (laughs) i'm human and it's also very rarely helpful as you beautifully articulated yeah i can see that i think it's it's interesting because we've had I actually have gotten to be coached by you. Like I have gotten to go into that sacred space with you and be able to have this like very focused, just like integrated conversation with you. And so I've gotten to see what like that firsthand sort of active listening sacred space that you create. And so I remember when we talked about it and that to me, it's not shocking that now you also do this podcast because you managed to create it here as well, that it feels really good. Like it just feels good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I do. It's a nice, nice little space. <laughs> well, I received that and I really appreciate it. So something I wanted to pick back up on, yeah. I know that you, you probably have while listening and really being curious and observing is an incredible gift. And, and that's probably the, the scaffolding, what underlies all of the things I'm also really interested in the tools and the models and and the ways that you map things out. You spoke a little bit to the way that you look at values. So curiosity Mm -hmm. is an embodied value of yours. It's it's not just a word that you use. It's it's a value. It's something that really means something to you. What are what are some other things that whether it's with you or with clients, ways that you help people get more clarity around who they are, self awareness? I think that those are really probably the most important leadership development tools that we can have is, is knowing, like when you were sharing your client example, it's no small thing to know to put up the safeguard. I talk a lot. I take up a lot of space. Please flag it if you need to cut me off and just mm-hmm. go for it. You know, that's not a small thing. So, so what are some other ways that you help people cultivate this type of self-awareness? You know, it's a tricky one. I think I talk of, so one of the things that I love there recently was a study that came out I was talking about the number one leadership quality of the best leaders. It's not empathy. It's not emotional intelligence. It's not strategy and vision. It's self-awareness. And listen, I don't know where the study's from. I don't got details on that. So, you know, fact check me on that. But ultimately I like it because it, it just resonates, right? There's this idea that in order to be a leader, in order to sort of be in control of your career, your organization, your team, your product, you really need to know yourself very, very, very well. And so there's, you know, there's lots of different ways to do that. And I think that sometimes, yeah, values work can be great. 
sometimes I use Strengths Finder, like the Clifton Strengths Finder. I'm a big fan of that, big fan. And and some of it's also around getting really interested in terms of patterns that are showing up. You know, when someone uses words like I always do this or I never do this, and getting to learn more about where that comes from and why that exists and how it impacts the decisions that we're making moving forward. I will say almost all my clients either are or end up sort of also working with a therapist and I love it. Like I, I have my own therapist who I'm obsessed with. And so I actually really love, love that about my clients is that oftentimes they're working with therapists and they're working with me and it helps create really beautiful delineation between the work that we're doing. So they have a space that they can kind of go into their past and spend time with their patterns. And then with me, they can come to me and say, Hey, you know, in therapy, I was talking about this pattern that I have. And I think that it's showing up in this space in the workplace and like, what can we do to work against it? And so even the fact that that self-awareness has existed, because sometimes working with a coach can be a little bit more active, right? It's, it's oftentimes really focused. A lot of the folks that I work with, I work for, with them for specific shorter periods of time. Like I don't, a lot of my folks, I don't work with for an extended period of time. So because of that, we get a lot done, but that sometimes means that we don't get to get the same level of depth that you would if you're working with a therapist every single week as well. And so having that partnership and that paired is, I love it. I, I'm like a big fan of it. doesn't always happen, but I'll say a lot of my clients are doing both. And so that makes a big difference as well. I'm trying to think you were asking about like tools and frameworks. Are there other ones that I specifically really enjoy doing? I don't think so. I think a lot of it is around pattern recognition. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, my, when I was trained as a coach and, and I will say that a lot of folks, when I start working with them, I use a lot more container around the work that we do. So like I'll give them, I'll assign them homework or I'll think about like tactics that they should try and I'll give them things to do. And then over time that really relaxes because we've actually created a relationship and a rapport that's really clear there. And so I usually joke, most of my clients, I work with them over three months and we meet every other week over those three months. And it's usually, I have around session three or session four, usually people show up and they're like, I don't even know what I want to talk about today. I'm like, amazing. Give me the ball of yarn. And then they'll just kind of word vomit at me and it really transitions the way that we work together moving forward. But that's, I guess I have more constraints sort of usually in the beginning, like we might do values exercise, but always there's things that we can kind of play with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, if I asked myself the same question, I I would have a hard time. I, I think when I first got started, I wanted to cling to a certain way of doing it. Like I, mm-hmm. I had a, a preconceived notion of how a session would look in my mind and mm. would also plan for the different things that if the conversation gets stuck, like this is what I'm going to ask, or this is a thing that they said three weeks ago that I could bring back up. And I, I think that a lot of that has to do with the conditioning around having you know needing certainty in some way or wanting control or the fact that as a coach i need to have a a good answer or lead them in some way and what what you're pointing to which is my favorite style of coaching is if we both show up whatever is meant to emerge is is probably going to emerge and Mm -hmm. like if we just let it unfold without trying to control it we're going to get where we want to go anyway right yeah i will say often those sessions where there's less control in place, more gets done mm-hmm. just because we're more open to it. 
There's certain things. So some of the clients that I work with, a lot of folks I work with are often going through transition. Either they're going to become a new leader, they're starting their own business, they're deciding to transition careers. So there are things that I often will do with clients over and over again. But those those things are, they're separate than the actual work. You know, I often try to keep those things separate so that we can have our session and really focus in on what makes the most sense to talk through. And then adding those things later. But yeah, it, it's a it's a difficult side at startup coaching. I remember when I first was doing my coach training, that was a question that I had. I was like trying to be like, well, what tools do I need? What should I leverage? Like da, 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 da. And every coach kept being like, hey, you don't need tools. Like stop trying to like shove tools down their throat. But that's a protective measure. And so there are still little things that I leverage. And I also spend an exorbitant amount of time reading like, science-based, science-backed self-help or professional development books. I'm like a total nerd for that. And so in that space, I'll also like leverage some things, but there's a difference between saying, Hey, let's talk about how we talk to ourselves versus I'm going to make you follow this seven step for the next three weeks. I feel like that's a formula for, they're not going to do it. Like I'm not going to do it. Don't anything you try to make me do every single day for a week, I'm going to forget to do. So Mm -hmm. You gotta, you gotta release a little bit. So there are some tailored specific things that I, I know that you work on with mm. yourself and with clients, I, I imagine. And and one of them is feedback. It's something that I'm, I'm really drawn to these days. It's, it's something that I've avoided for most of my life. Like I do not want to be told that I'm mm-hmm. not good at something, even if I know it non-judgmentally to be true inside of me. Yeah. And there's still that part of me is still strong. Like someone listening to this conversation right now came up to me and was like, you're a terrible interviewer, Mike. I, I would like, that would hurt. You know, I, yeah. I would really be upset by that. But I also know that soliciting feedback is what's going to help me continue to learn and grow. So in some ways, it feels like it was always there with you. Like you, you pointed to early on in the conversation that People would tell you when you weren't good at it and you were able to kind of bounce off of it. It wasn't, wasn't that big of a deal, but I mean, it wasn't always enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, it, but in some ways you expose yourself to it earlier than a lot of other people do. Like I, I protected my, I really shielded myself from getting feedback for a long time and, and only did things I knew would get approval from other people because mm-hmm. I, I knew I was good at it. And that's so like I, a beautiful I, self-protective measure, by the way. That's like it is a very human, supportive. Your brain is trying to keep you safe. You know, it's like don't ask for feedback unless it's like perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, our brains are beautiful, special bodies. They are. They're brilliant. I it know. actually does. It ties in a little bit to the question, like in preparation, I, mm-hmm. I just give you an opportunity to write down things that you would want to get on a soapbox about. Mm-hmm. And so one of them was about the expectations that we place on ourselves via expectations of other people. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. Feedback is a, is a tricky one, right? So like, oh, yeah. is it, is this useful for me? Is mm-hmm. it just them projecting their stuff on me? What, what, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of things baked in there, but it's so gnarly. Yeah. It's so gnarly. Feedback is one of those things that like, I think you gave such a beautiful explanation, which was 
you know, we protect ourselves from feedback because we don't really want it because it's going to hurt or we wait to get feedback until, you know, we feel like it's perfect. And the only feedback they could give me is like, there's a typo on that page. And that's, it's really normal. And I think that, you know, I had, um, I had a client who really talented and she was terrified of soliciting feedback and it was actually impacting her ability to succeed within the organization because she was avoiding feedback. You know, she was, and she wasn't asking for input. She wasn't eliciting input because she wanted to sort of control, right? A a lot of avoidance of feedback is a desire for control. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some beautiful things that we can do that help with that, which is one, I mean, is practice, right? Practice makes perfect and helps us practice makes progress, I suppose. And so one of the things that I also love to highlight to folks is like, you're allowed to put controls into place when you request feedback. Like when you go and ask someone, how's the podcast doing? They could tell you anything. But if you go to someone and you say, hey, I would love for you to listen to this podcast and tell me if you think there's anywhere in the conversation that I could have asked even more thought-provoking question what it is, you're going to get really different insight, right? No one's going to come back from that and be like, you're terrible feedback. Like you're terrible at interviewing. They're instead going to give you really thoughtful, focused feedback. So I think that's one of the things that I always love to highlight to folks is like, you're allowed to put controls into place in terms of the feedback that you're looking for. And someone still might go off the rails and give you feedback that you don't want, but then you're very aware, ah, this is something that I didn't really want to hear. And I get to decide, do I want to take this in? Do I get to just, I get to decide, is this necessary? Is this something that I want to work on? Is it holding me back? Am I getting defensive around it because I don't like it? Am I getting defensive around it because it scares me? Am I getting defensive around it because I don't know how to handle it? And it gives a little bit more space. I think that, you know, it's, it's Kim Scott, right? Who wrote Radical Candor. And that's a great book in terms of feedback. And even in the book, as you're reading it, you're like, this is hard. Mm-hmm. And literally she has now an, kind of an entire career based on feedback and how do we deliver really helpful information and receive helpful information. And I think it's a craft, Like, I think it's really hard because I could even get really good at giving feedback to one of the people on my team when I was working within a team and that the way I give them feedback doesn't work for someone else. Mm -hmm. And so feedback is one of those things that I think we all have our own styles. We all have our own methods. So part of it is thinking about the feedback that you're giving. Part of it's thinking about who you're giving it to. And some of it's also thinking about like the way we deliver that feedback. It's, it's, it is the reason why it's so hard is because it's so hard. It's so hard to give feedback. It's hard to deliver. It's hard to receive feedback. It's uncomfortable. When do I give the feedback? It's like, it's different for different people. Mm -hmm. And so I actually think one of the things that I've worked with a lot of folks that I work with that have like teams is when you come onto the team, spending time with the individuals and saying, how do you like to receive feedback? Mm -hmm. What makes feedback work for you? Nine times out of 10, people don't know. That's okay. It means like, okay, but now you know that I'm here and I want to know how you like to receive feedback. Do you like to receive it in the moment? Do you like it to be in writing? Do you like us to have a conversation that I send you writing afterwards? Do you want to make sure it's as soon as possible to the thing that occurred so that you're not going off course? Or would you rather me take time and sort of see if there's a pattern, right? These are things that we can start to learn when we're working within a team and it ultimately can make it 
a much more enjoyable experience. I also highlight that, you know, if you're in a leader of a team, the first thing you have to do is solicit feedback and highlight that you can receive feedback and that you want to receive feedback before you start dishing out feedback. Cause like, that's a dick move, but it's so freaking tricky. I mean, I think it's something that we're really good at avoiding delivering or receiving. And even when we do deliver and receive, we're, we're not great at it. All of us aren't great at it. It's like so hard. It's a craft and it's changes and it's, and it's really, 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 really hard. Mm-hmm. There's still, there's a lot that was really good in there though, Ricky. And I particularly was, was drawn to, so one, just making it this bespoke process and, and the mm-hmm. act of in any way saying you're a unique person, what, what how would this be effective for you? Mm-hmm. Is already just an amazing start. I, I haven't come across that many companies that are actively doing that and saying it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. And meaning that the the people who are the CEO or the partners or whatever, like they're subject to the same type of feedback as yeah. someone who's just entry level or a, a staff person or you know whatever the hierarchy of a company is. But I think what what also is a huge edge for me mm-hmm. is ask really tailored specific questions because with the feedback, knowing what you're looking for. So I think it, it identifies, there's a skill of like, what, what is my area for development and, mm-hmm. and how can I ask a question that is going to help me make some sort of progress around the area for development? So asking a question like what could be better about this podcast is, is very broad. It's, it's maybe something like, do you have any feedback about the podcast is, is not a really great question. Do you have anything that you enjoyed about the podcast is a tiny bit of a better question, but maybe what did you think about how would you decide to start this conversation on a podcast? If you could start it any way that you wanted or something like that. Now Mm -hmm. we're getting a really specific question that is probably going to get them to answer. Mm-hmm. So I, I think about this. So yeah. Is something I was say, up and he, yeah. I was going to say, and even taking into account, who am I asking for feedback? Yeah. Right. Like sometimes we ask feedback from people that we really truthfully shouldn't be asking feedback from hmm. because we actually don't want to hear it from them or because they actually aren't going to tell us truthful information. Right. It's like, and and that's part of it too is, and, and that's part of receiving feedback in general is that sometimes you get to be like, well, do I want your feedback? Do I think it's valuable? And we kind of can decide to dismiss it. But in the instance that you're delivering here too, it's also like, whose input am I soliciting? And is, is that input something that I value? And even if it's someone that you do value, they might give you feedback that you don't value. It's so mm-hmm. freaking tricky. Yeah. It really is, but I, but you've done a really good job of addressing it. I I really believe that. So, hmm, where do we go now, Ricky? We're in this we're in this interesting dance here. I yeah. Where where would you like to go from here? What okay, are, what so are something some... that we didn't talk about yet. I written it down when we spoke before. Was and we talked a little bit about this at the beginning. We were just like catching up, which is not recorded. Sorry we were talking a little bit about like jealousy, a comparison. Mm-hmm. I feel like we were getting some meaty stuff there. So I don't know if you want to get into that with me here because I feel like- Would love to. I mean, I could talk about feedback all day, but I feel like jealousy is such a funny, also tricky little thing. And so I feel like we were getting into like something there. 
yeah. uh, before we hopped on. And so that was one of the areas that I jotted down that I was like, oh, we should talk about that too. Mm. But I'm open. Yeah, I'm happy to set a container. So there are the the synapses are firing in my brain in a particular way right now. But so let's see if I can land the plane around how jealousy connects for me. Mm. So I've I was really drawn to there was a point or maybe even multiple points in the conversation where you spoke to the distinction between fear that is signposting you towards your growth edge and mm. fear that is letting you know that this isn't the right space for you in particular around say facilitation right like i actually don't want to be leading this retreat that's not a good fit for me versus mm. oh this feels edgy i don't know if i'm really capable of this but i want to be i want to be capable of this mm-hmm. and so jealousy in a way for me brings up this a, a similar kind of practice for me is, is this jealousy signposting me towards something I care about? Or am I just comparing myself to other people (laughs) and making this unhealthy, like I should be right? that word. I think that word is actually a great marker for me. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I think, and specifically the reason we were talking about jealousy I would love, I hope Justin, Jeremy, and Yash, I hope you guys listen to this one. I felt like you guys are leading a retreat in October. So by the time this is released, it'll still be a little bit in the future from now. Mm -hmm. I've been feeling a little bit of, why not me? Why are you three doing it together? I want to be leading that retreat. And, And for me, I actually do think the jealousy is towards, this is an edge for me that I I want to be there. Mm-hmm. But for you, that hasn't been the case. Or this. No, I was this- like, the idea of I was, you know, there's this piece that I'm like, oh, I want, I want to be asked to the dance. And then there's another part <laughs> of me that was like, the idea of being in a contained space it, for five, for multiple days with certain people. And no. <laughs> like, <laughs> when am I going to read my fantasy novels? I got to watch Bones. Like, I need time to myself. Oh. You know, <laughs> I'm the person who woke up on my bachelorette weekend, like a little early so that I could have some solo time before mm-hmm. I hung out with like my favorite people in my life. Mm-hmm. Come on. But I, yeah. I think it's, I, it's so interesting. I, I love, I love jealousy as a tool. I like, you know, the way you were talking about it is sort of what I love about jealousy is that, you know, when you feel yourself getting jealous, which is if you're not feeling jealousy, you're not a human, or maybe you have some kind of capability that I don't understand. And I'm jealous of you now, but you know, when we feel jealousy, there's the initial response is jealousy, right? It's a little, maybe it's anger, maybe it's fear, maybe it's rage, maybe it's just whatever. And so I love leveraging it as a tool as of information, which is first of all, sometimes our jealousy is unfounded, right? You might look at someone and say, and you had, you had a really beautiful reframe in this, which is that, you know, I'm jealous of someone and you get to start to toy with, am I jealous because I think I should want that, right? The should, ugh, the external expectations, the our external expectations of self, or is it, you know, I do want that. And seeing them do it makes me think about like, well, like how can I make that happen, right? And I And it can be incredibly informative. I also think that jealousy is one of those things that you know, sometimes we have that initial response and you have to spend time with, well, what does it take to get where they're doing this? Right. You know, there's, I, there's 
a, a woman I know, incredibly talented. She just, I, just, oh, she's so badass. Sometimes I feel jealousy towards her. I love her. She's so badass. But then sometimes I kind of peek under the hood and because I happen to know her well, I actually know what her day-to-day looks like. And I have no interest in her day-to-day, right? I I see the effort and the energy and what she's putting into it and how much it takes out of her. And I'm like, listen, I love having time in my day to like go for a run, to decide to like sleep late one day or like take a nap or, you know, cook a long detailed meal and and she somehow still manages to do that, which I'm confused by. But ultimately, <laughs> I, I love seeing it as as information, and I love seeing it as giving you signals, signposts. Right? Is this? I'm jealous of this person. Is it helpful to me? Is it helpful because I see them doing something that I want to do? And also recognizing if it's hurtful. Right? I, I am such a huge proponent. LinkedIn, Instagram any of the social media forms that if you, if there's someone who shows up in your feed, even if they're a friend of yours and they show up and every time they show up, you're like, right. But you don't want their life. Mute them. Just, you don't have to unfollow. You don't have to unlink. Just freaking mute them. Like you actually don't need that noise to make yourself feel bad every Mm. once in a while because they're doing something that you don't actually even want to do but they're doing it and there's something about it that's giving you some kind of feels and you can just mute it. Just get yeah. it out. Like you do not need to do it. And also always remember that the version online is not the truth. <laughs> it's never the truth. There's always so much behind it. Mm-hmm. And so I love leveraging it as a tool. I think it's tricky when we think about fear in terms of, is this because it's a growth edge for me or is this because I don't want to do it? I think that's really hard. It's it's hard to sort of recognize, am I avoiding this because I don't want to do it? Or am I avoiding this because it makes me nervous? I usually, I'll throw this out there, which is that if you aren't sure, it just might not be time yet. Mm-hmm. That's the thing I like to highlight too, is like, I think a lot of us as humans, when you're in the coaching development space, there's like, push yourself, go hard, peak performance, make it happen, productivity. And like, take a nap. You know what I mean? It's like, cool. Maybe I do want to, maybe you do want to participate in a retreat and amazing. Maybe that's a goal that we set for ourselves for like 2024. doesn't even have to be this year. Mm-hmm. Chill out. Let it have some time to breathe. What rush mm-hmm. are you in? Mm-hmm. Take a break. Have some ice cream. So can I, can I share a couple of things that are coming up for me? Yes. It's really, I, I, I really love this in the, in the age of Instagram highlight reels and comparison culture and, and everyone mm-hmm. portraying a certain life that isn't actually real. It, it does help me to, a, a couple of things are coming up for me. One is, am I actually willing to do whatever it needs, whatever needs to happen for that to be a reality? Mm-hmm. And, and like really honestly answering that because that's what it comes down to a lot of the times for me with the way that I've really methodically been building my coaching business is that when I'm actually at rest, I am not willing to compromise my next three years of getting really good night's sleep every night, having really spacious, you know, taking an hour for lunch, taking two hours for dinner, Mm -hmm. watching a TV show at night with my wife every single night. Yes. Like, I I've been sold a bill of goods in a way that that's, I shouldn't be wanting that. 
and like you've got to get out of your comfort zone, bro. And like, that's you're, yeah. you're, you're stunting gratitude's holding you back, man. And yes, I, I appreciate your invitation. And the way that I look at that is just ask myself, am I actually willing to do the thing that I think I want to do and being okay when that answer is no, and that that might change and to just keep asking that question. So there's, that's one level. And then another is that, so the grass is always greener effect. I, in theory, love the idea of being a digital nomad. I think it's the coolest fucking thing ever. I, our friends, John and Caroline are doing it. Yeah. And, and in some ways I feel envious and jealous of the Mm -hmm. experience that they're having. They get to go to all these cool places, Mm -hmm. experience them for six weeks at a time. They're actually living all over the world, meeting new people, experiencing new things. And when I travel for any extended period of time, by the end of a week or two, I want to be home so badly. Like Mm -hmm. I love being home. And so like, just acknowledging that, that doesn't, there's nothing flawed about that. Like I enjoy having that type of consistency in my life. I like having my own space that I consistently show up to. I'm not a digital nomad type of guy, at least right now. Yes. It's like, we're not all the same. I I think it's beautiful. And I love that, right? Because our friends, John and Caroline, they're incredibly crushing it. They're having such an amazing time. You know, I love following along. And at the same time, I love that I get to rest in the bed that I have selected and is beautifully comfortable. And I get woken up at six o'clock in the morning to a three-year-old who says, ma, I'm like, it's great. It's good. (laughs) You know? Yeah. It's tricky. I think it's also moments in time too. I think that impacts me as well. I was with a couple this past weekend and they were talking about like going on a trip and I was getting so jealous. And I was talking to my partner about it afterwards. And he was like, yeah, they don't have kids, Rick. Like we have a kid. Of course, we're not going to just say, Hey, let's like jet off to a European country for a hot minute. Like girlfriend is in school. Like what, what, where's she going? She coming with us? Is she staying home? Like who's watching her? You know? And it's just, it's a little bit more tricky. And I think that I'm really fortunate. A lot of the clients that I work with are often in their like thirties and forties. That's sort of my, that's my spot. And it's because I like working in the space that there's more constraints. I love working with people who are, you know, I've, I've worked with some folks who are in like their twenties and that's fun too. And I like that because there's a lot of exploration and ability and you can kind of do anything, you know, who cares? Let's, let's go somewhere else and let's join a different company. And there's a lot of freedom in that, which I, I super fun, really intoxicating to participate in that. At the same time, I love working with my clients who are working under really real constraints and how do you still create like ease enjoy an exploration when you're like, I still need to make rent this month and rent is no joke. And how do I do that in a way that feels like I'm still growing and I'm challenging myself, but I'm not being totally risky. I'm being slightly risk averse and being really thoughtful. And that's a space that I love too. I think that it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting as we get to know ourselves, right? It's like, there's something really intoxicating about the idea of being in a new place every six weeks. And at the same time, you know, my husband and I, after we spent three weeks in Japan by night, you know, by the very end of it, we were like, I just want to go home. Mm-hmm. I just, I just want, I just want takeout from like 
our spot. I don't want to think about, cause it is, it's exhausting. You know, it's like, I don't want to think about like, where are we going to eat tonight? I just want to, I just want to sit on the couch. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. Like, I don't stop telling me that there's something wrong with that <laughs> yeah. society. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> I want my takeout in peace. Stop telling yes. me to adventure and live. Well, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's a, another way of being sold that we're, you know, we're not enough or our life mm-hmm. isn't enough. And if, unless we are, you know, living to the max yeah. at all times. So, and, and that's, that's capitalism, dude. Like I like, let's is. take a quick moment. That's freaking capitalism. Like a lot of times, another thing that I love about like the, the age group that I usually work with is because a lot of times that's the time in our life that we suddenly realize, is it better to make more money or is it better to have more control over my time? A lot of folks I work with are actually making decisions that are around how does work integrate with my life in a holistic style? I mean, those are, I was joking about this with one of my clients that he was like, I would not send someone to you. Who's like, I want to make CEO next year. And I was like, I don't (laughs) want to work with that. They're not going to want to work with me. They're going to be like, this girl's not hardcore enough. Cause a lot of times it's actually around, well, like, how does, how do, how do I work to live, not live to work? Like, how do I make these things work within what I want? And what do I want and how do I sort of think about that? And it's been really interesting. A lot of folks that I've worked with have opted to take pay cuts or have opted to take career transitions that move them in a different direction or have decided to sort of start their own thing. And, and they're thinking about their time differently. And Mm -hmm. I get to like shake my little fist at capitalism every single time. And granted, let's be real. I love when people want to make money. I'm going, I love trying to figure out how to get people more money. Like if we're going to negotiate and get more money or like raise prices, let's freaking do it. I'm down. But as long as it's taken in consideration with everything else, right? It's not just like to get more money, to get more money, to get more money. It's, oh, I want to get more money because I want to retire early because I want to travel. Or I want to get more money because I want to make sure that my kid's college fund is fully funded, right? These are, or I want to make more money because I want to make sure that I can take care of my parents in their old age. These are beautiful reasons in terms of thinking about, I don't want to just make more money to like hoard it on my little yacht, mm-hmm. Bezos. <laughs> well, what you're pointing to is, is it a conscious choice or are you unconsciously driven just for the sake of going for it? So for me, if it was, mm. you know, if I was just on the hamster wheel trying to maximize the amount of money I was making and I couldn't give you a clear reason of why it was important to me to be making $500,000 a year and, yeah. and why that felt specifically important to me. Or if I couldn't give you a specific reason why I wanted to travel for every six weeks to a new country. Yeah. And it was just something along the lines of other people are doing it. It looks cool. And I want to try it. It's a good invitation to have a deeper inquiry about, well, let's slow this down a little bit. And yeah. I appreciate your style because it's in coaching. We're in a re- like a really precarious and vulnerable position. You know, the, the wrong person could easily put the foot down and be like, you don't, if you want it bad enough, you got to go for this right now. Mm-hmm. And whereas like, I think there's usually opportunity to just check in on that, which is like, why? I think one of the things comes up with a lot of my clients that I refer, it's, it's a really, it's a, it's a term that I don't put into social media, but I will talk about it here. Cause like, it's a different space, which is, I refer to it as your prestige whore, which is like. <laughs> I, you, now you immediately understand why I don't talk about it in places because I'm like, sex work is valid work. I'm not going to participate in this conversation, but whatever. But the procedure is really helpful because oftentimes it's our external expectations of self or like it holds up a lot of shoulds. And so like 
your prestige whore, let's say it's like, oh, I want to be this digital nomad. It's like, okay, that's your prestige whore talking. Why? And oftentimes you're like, it's because I want to like show the people that I grew up with that like, look at me. And you're like, is that a good reason? <laughs> <laughs> like it might be. It doesn't mean that we're not going to listen to it, but it means that we're going to take time to think about where is this coming from? And do I want that to be a guiding light in my life? Mm. Do I want people from when I was 13 years old to be having control over the decisions I make now as a 36 year old? I don't. Mm -hmm. I think another thing that I have found really personally helpful is if I, if I get to the root or the core desire of that thing, so call it freedom. Freedom seems like a word that would come up, right? If I have the flexibility and freedom of I can live anywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, what, is, what does freedom look like to you on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day yeah. basis, right? Like, how are you living freely in your life right now? Or how would you want to live freely in your life right now? And for me, that has, that has really helped me. A lot of the edges that I've had as a client is... Like Mike, you're, you love thinking big and dreaming high in the mm. sky, but like, what's like the tiniest thing that you could do in this moment to, to move in that type of direction? Like what, and, and what does freedom look like to you also? And it's also like beautiful. Cause even when you've been talking about that freedom for you might look like being able to have an hour long lunch, mm -hmm. two hour long dinner, watching a show with your wife. Like that is a exactly. version of freedom, right? That's yes. a version of you having freedom to leverage your time and squander it enjoy it, rest it in a way that feels really good to you. And freedom doesn't have to be, I don't even know what country I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, but, but, and it's, and it helps also, you know, even when we think about like language is so specific, right? Freedom. When I say freedom, it could conjure up different ideas for different people. And for you, when we initially thought of freedom, maybe that's where the digital nomad came from. But as we spend more time with it, it was like, freedom actually looks like being able to have a two hour long dinner with my wife and like be able to sit and take your time and talk about our day and like, just connect with each other. And that's freaking beautiful use of freedom. So something, this is a little tangential, but something that I absolutely want to talk to you about is being a parent. Oh, yeah. I I'm going to be a parent in a couple of months. It, oh, I might God. be a parent by the time this episode is released. Oh my gosh. That'd be so exciting. It would be, it'd be really exciting. And you, you wrote in preparation for this conversation that you would want to talk about how having a daughter has made you brave. Oh, it has. What's it, what's it like, what's it been like to be a parent, Ricky? How has it changed oh, you? Wow. It's wild. <laughs> I mean, everyone's going to say that, let's be real. But I think, um, so I didn't really as a seven-year-old, since I wanted to be James Bond, if you know, James Bond is unaware of any children that he may or may not have. I mean, honestly, James Bond probably has a lot of kids that he doesn't know about. <laughs> but like, I didn't really spend most of my childhood imagining being a parent or getting married. Just I, James Bond wasn't doing it. And so that was never really like on my plate. It wasn't something that I was considering. And when I met my now husband, we've been together for like, by the time this comes out, like 11 years. Wow. And I know that's crazy. And he's amazing. And, yeah. you know, he, he, I knew that he really wanted kids. That was something I always knew. And I remember I was sitting down, I was at a museum with my mom and I asked her about having kids because I, I knew that she also wasn't super interested in having kids when she did. And she said something that was really powerful 
two things that she said that I thought was really beautiful was that it's different when they're yours, which I'm sure is different, it, which I'm sure impacts whether you're fostering, adopting, surrogacy, whatever, you know, it's still building a family. It looks really specific to you. And also that she said, you, I could not downplay how transformative it is to our relationship now, like getting to know you as an adult and be friends with you almost. We have a totally different relationship now, myself with my parents. And I hadn't really thought about that. You know, when you think about having kids, you often think about like babies and what that's going to look like. And I hadn't really thought about, oh, like, you know, hopefully if you do an okay job and if your child also does an okay job and everybody does all right in terms of communication and expectations, you might get to have a continued relationship past 18 or past the requirements that are there. And that, that really shifted some things for me. And so when I had my daughter, you know, I was, I was super freaked out. I was like, Oh God, that's going to change everything. It's going to be so different. She was born in February of 2020. So a lot of other things got changed right around that too. Uh, (laughs) Transformational year, if you will. And it was, it was so different than I could have anticipated. And I think that I've been really lucky. I don't, I don't, I don't think I knew what I was going to be like as a parent. There, I don't think you ever really do, but I, I'm just like super into her. She's so freaking fun. I, every time that she gets older, she gets like even more fun and like more interesting and more. And so like, it's been really interesting because people are like, oh, don't you wish you could just like freeze her? Or like, you know, don't you miss her when she was baby? I'm like, nah, dude, like she's so cool right now. And so like, that's also been a really beautiful exploration in terms of how we age and change and just being present with where she is now and what's so interesting about her now. I'm not trying to control, right? Like I have no interest in like, for example, girlfriend, it, her, her style right now is so hardcore. She's a little fashionista girlfriend is wearing today. She was like, I got to wear this dress. It's like got a tutu situation. She's like, I'm going to need this unicorn hair clip. I need my unicorn bracelet. Like I'm going to be real girlfriend looks fly as fuck. But I was like, <laughs> this is not the outfit I would put together. And like, but she put on, she was like, my friends are going to love this outfit. I was like, where did you get this from? I'm literally wearing the same outfit I wore yesterday. And I probably wore it this weekend. And like, it's covered in coffee, but I'm like, but you look amazing. I love it. And like, we, we can't, she chooses what she wears now. So, and these are like beautiful moments that you're just like, okay, cool. Like she has an opinion, let her be. And she's this own entity and it's incredible. And I think that watching her and while I was home with her is when I decided to transition into coaching. And I, because it was something I'd always wanted to do, but I kept getting distracted by my ego. And I had this moment that I was like, I really want her to see that her parents can do hard things, that they can push themselves outside of their comfort zones, that it's okay to like take risks and do things that are new and make mistakes and be a beginner and not know what you're doing sometimes and sort of be, be open to transition and change. And that gave me a lot of confidence in going ahead and doing this. And I think that still building my coaching practice, oftentimes I do think about her because when I'm going to go do something that makes me nervous, I think about her and her little beautiful brain and how open she is to trying new things. And I just get to like check back into that kind of beginner mindset and be open to making mistakes. Like, you know, no kid stands up and is like good at walking from day one. They suck at it. And that doesn't mean that you don't keep trying. And so it's just trying to learn new things. And I think that 
That's been pretty awesome. She's also like, she's great. I'm obsessed with her. She's so freaking cool. She's like such a cool cat. So I got mm. nothing there. Mm. But yeah. It doesn't have to be in coaching or parenting. It, it doesn't have to be specific to anything mm. in particular, but I'm, I'm definitely curious what challenges or failures or ways that you have fallen short have helped you learn and grow. I mean, there's so many catalyzing things happened around the same time for you, like COVID, mm-hmm. the birth of your daughter and starting mm-hmm. a business all around the same time started. I imagine that the last three plus years have been full of learning and growing and falling on your face, challenges, failures, and you seem to do it with grace. So what what has it looked like for you? Oh man, is that how it looks from the outside? The inside is much messier. According to your <laughs> highlight reel on LinkedIn and Instagram, Ricky, I mean, it's all, it looks like you're falling on your face perfectly. Full circle. Love it. You know, it's, ah, I think. Okay. So there's, there's one thing that really helped me and I, I feel like a jerk talking about it, but I'm going to talk about it, which is that. I always, this, I'm, I'm going to go on a weird tangent. Just go with me. I always wanted to be a runner. I always wanted to be a runner. It was something that I thought was super freaking cool. I was like, oh, I want to really be a runner. My husband is a runner. He's fast too. And I, and I, sometimes we go on runs together and bless his heart. The entire time I'd be like, this is terrible. I hate it. And he's like, literally, we haven't even made it a mile. Like you are not good at this. But I kept wanting to be a runner. And at some point I finally gave up on it. I was like, it's not going to happen for me. I'm just not made to be a runner. You know, I had childhood asthma. My legs are short. I don't have lung capacity. I had all these reasons, right? I was like, I'm, I am I'm just shouldn't be a runner. And so instead I focus on the other stuff. I like yoga, hit, strength training, all that stuff. And then something that really formulated a lot of the transition that happened during this time was the fact that I had my daughter, COVID, and I was starting my business. And I had read Angela Duckworth's Grit, which was talking about one hard thing, which is the idea of like, you need to do something that's like your one hard thing. Now, seriously, any of those three things could already be my one hard thing. The fact that I was like starting a business, I was becoming a parent, I was dealing with COVID, we didn't know what was going on. And the thing that I added on was that I said, you know, maybe this is the time to try running. And I tried it with a totally different approach, total beginner mindset. I'm talking like, I started... Also, previous times I like tried to go run with my husband who's freaking fast. This time I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter. Here's the goal. My goal is I'm going to spend some time running. Doesn't matter how fast. I'm going to do the run walk. I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to make an effort and I'm going to reward myself as I get better at it. And it was a game changer. So my ego came way down because I, you know, oh my gosh, I'd be like going on this run walk situation. I just be getting passed by like women in their seventies. I was like, damn it. And I really had to work on my ego. You know, I was like, I'm, I'm a little competitive. And I was like, I got to catch up with them. And the whole process of starting my business and becoming a, a young parent, new parent and dealing with COVID and adding and running made a massive difference because First of all, I had this out, I had this resource that I could leverage, right? I'd get an email that stressed me out. And rather than just responding, I'd actually be like, you know what? I'm going to go for my run today. And I'd go on a run. I say run strongly. Y'all should be thinking yog, 
you know, like a slow jog because that's how slow I'm so slow and I don't care. And I just, and it was a supportive measure that I was able to sort of leave my house. No one could reach me. I couldn't hear the phantom cries of my child and I would just be out there. And I made lots of mistakes, right? You know, I would have days that I pushed myself too hard or I'd have days that I decided not to run and how I worked through the guilt and discomfort of not doing that. And doing that at the same time that I was building my business and becoming a parent and dealing with COVID was really helpful because it actually gave me an outlet to allow for a lot of failure and allow for a lot of discomfort and mistakes to happen while at the same time building my business. It made it easier because I was like, oh, I'm getting like good at messing up or like being slow or like having to walk. And at the same time, I was building my business. And I think that that has been, and I still leverage it now, like referencing and leveraging that as a, as a tool and a tactic has been really helpful around creating delineation between and getting good at messing up. I think that's what it is, is like, I've created tons of resources and spaces in my life that it's okay to just mess up and like not do a great job. And, you know, it still means that there, I do self-protective things too, that I avoid doing stuff that. I think would probably be good for my business, but make me uncomfortable. And I usually spend time with it. And I sort of decide, is it because I don't have all the information and I'm an information seeker? Or is it because I don't actually want to do that thing right now? And oftentimes I'm I'm good at giving myself a little bit of grace and sort of saying, it's probably just not time for it. It doesn't mean that I won't do it. It just means that maybe I won't do it right now. And that's okay. Hmm. So, yeah. Well, I created it, it, basically a space that let me mess up a lot. It was great. And it invokes the phrase, how you do anything is how you do everything for me. Yeah. That you in, in learning how to be a beginner as you're running, it, it helped you transpose it onto all the other changes that were happening. I'm sure that it led to more grace as a beginner of a parent oh, yeah. and as a beginner, as you started your business. Yep. And it's a, it's a beautiful lesson to take away for me when I started going back to the gym, there were times mm-hmm. where 10 pound weights were really heavy for me. That is eat. heavy. Yes. Well, for not for a guy who's doing, you know, like squats or something. I mean, that's objectively, it's, it's not that heavy, but we all have to start somewhere. And I let it be like, Mike, this is challenging for you. Mm-hmm. So just let it be challenging for you. This is what's yeah. going to help you grow, not mm-hmm. the person who's been doing this for eight years. And, you know, you're watching a polished version of someone else who already has gone through the the beginner steps and then took it to intermediate. And it's a reminder that I need for myself all the time is yeah. to like really be elementary about it and go back to basics and be okay with sucking at something. You know, like there's a theme here that we've been kind of talking about is also this desire for like, oh, you got to go hard, man. You know, it's like that versus just allowing the process to happen. Like, I think that it's the fact that you were going to the gym is a win, right? It's like, mm-hmm. just take a step back. We were going to the gym. It's amazing. You're better than so many Americans that are not at the gym. So like, who the hell cares if you're carrying 10 pound weights and the guy next to you is holding 25? It like, it it's really hard the comparison thing, it just shows up, right? It's like, we're looking around all the time and it's okay to take a step back and say like, I'm on my path. My path is for me. And of course I I could go harder and I could get hurt. Like it's okay to sort of take this at the pace that feels good to me. That's still pushing me. 10 pounds is still freaking heavy. It's not that I'm like phoning it in. 
It's I'm recognizing where is my growth edge and I'm dancing on it. Mm-hmm. That's it. So Ricky, is there anything that we haven't spoken about so far today that feels important to you to bring into the conversation now? I do have some some other questions for you, but they're they're more kind of back end things. So is there is there anything else that feels important to you to discuss? No, we got in it. We did get in it. So you had mentioned a couple of books so far throughout the conversation, Grit by Angela mm-hmm. Duckworth and Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Mm-hmm. And we identified, but we don't know exact the exact merits of the article, but it rings true to me that self-awareness would be the, the most important skill to have as a leader. And mm-hmm. certainly if it's not the most important, it's going to help you be a much better, more dynamic, more complete human, let alone leader. So if you were to gift any one book to someone who wanted to develop more self-awareness, what would the book be? Oh my God, this is like the hardest question you've ever asked me. <laughs> oh, If I'm it'd just... be easier to do three to five, I'm, I'm here for it. No, I, I no, love... I'm just, I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking it's, you know, what I usually think about is when it comes to like personal development or professional development books, I love to think about the ones that really hit, like the ones that sort of do something for you that are, that make you sort of see things differently. One of the ones that I usually recommend like happily is The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. It's interesting. It's talking about sort of like how we gather why we gather, what it looks like. And as someone who's introverted, who stresses in those, in that gathering space, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. It's written. It just like brings you along in this great way. I thought that that was really, really good. And then another book, because, because that book is not necessarily going to work for someone who's, who doesn't want to do gatherings in any format. Like you're not going to be interested in this, but the other one that I recently read, I'm just like pulling it up so that I don't get it was with Amy Gallo. She normally writes for Harvard Business Review, which is getting along, how to work with anyone, even difficult people. I like that one too. Hmm. Oh God, there's so many. I'm like, I just opened up my Kindle and I'm just like looking at all of the books that I've read recently. And I'm like, oh my God, I have have too many. Set boundaries, find peace. Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, Nedra Glover-Tawab. That's so good. Although I will say that that book was from, it's really triggering when you read it. Cause you're like, Oh my God, I'm not doing a good job of boundaries anywhere. <laughs> you aren't, none of us are, but it's such a good book. And it's so active around recognizing and thinking about boundaries. It focuses more on like family and relationships, but there is sections around work as well. Okay. I'll stop. You were like so, one book. And then I was like, let me open the, up my stuff. I got things to say. I, I love having all of them. I, I don't think that there needs to be a limit, but sometimes it, in uh, the spirit of asking tailored specific questions, I like to hone in on, you know, if, if, if it brings up more than one answer, that's great. But if I just said, what's a book you'd recommend, then that's, a, that's very open-ended. So I've learned to be a little more specific with my question asking. I love it. What is an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? sitting in my backyard with my kiddo on my lap watching bunnies we have a lot of bunnies in my town and we recently moved from brooklyn to the suburbs which was 
and is a rough transition for me. I'm just, it's difficult. It's really hard. And at the same time, like sitting with her on the chair in my backyard and she's like, bunny, bunny. And we're like watching them eat and checking out birds and just chilling. And I'm like, all right, this is why we did this. Yeah. It's beautiful. When you hear the word success, who is the first person that comes to mind and and what does success mean to you maybe? Okay. So that's a loaded question. I love it. I think when I think about success, I don't think there's anyone specific that comes to me because actually coming back to the conversation around comparison and jealousy, I think that the concept of success is really complicated, right? Like I could say, oh, success means Bezos because he's just like full of money or success could mean this other individual because they're doing X, Y, Z or like blah, 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 blah. I think when I think about what success looks like, I think feeling like 80% of the time, you're pretty happy with how things are going. Can't be 100%. Don't be crazy. There's got to be one day a week or one meeting in the day or a week out of the month that things don't feel good. But mm-hmm. like if 80% of the time you're like, that's pretty good. I think that that's what success looks like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are there any, I know this is a kind of a big one, but are there any conventional personal development beliefs or things that are in the zeitgeist that you would challenge or or think the opposite about? Like, for example, I've heard Tim Ferriss say that he thinks that shame could be a good thing. That would probably be unpopular with a lot of people. Mm. Do you have any unconventional beliefs? Maybe happiness is overrated. I'm just throwing some stuff out there. Yeah. Discipline is bullshit. Mm. Like I, I get really angry around our expectations of what discipline looks like, because to me, it's requesting us to be machines and even machines need a break. Like there's this whole idea that if you don't do the exact same output as you had yesterday, then you are now a failure. Or like, if you don't have continuous improvement or continuous on the same path, you're not doing everything exactly right. Then why even bother? I think this idea of discipline often is just an invitation for perfectionism and all or nothing thinking to raise its ugly head. You know, it's like, some days you're going to crush and some days you're going to wallow and that's all right. And I think it's really around thinking about balance over time rather than each day, you know, like, like for like carpe diem, fuck it. Like screw you carpe diem. Like I, <laughs> like I, it's okay if yesterday I watched bones for so long that Hulu asked me if I was still watching. <laughs> it's fine. So yeah, just, I'm, I got, you know, and and this also comes from someone who people would say I'm really disciplined. People mm-hmm. often say I'm really disciplined. And I think it's because my expectation of discipline is like, okay, cool. It's just about moving in the direction that I want. Mm-hmm. It's not about doing the same thing every single day or making myself crazy. I'm just going to enjoy this process. Well, thank you for screaming that from the mountaintop. I certainly needed to hear that. I am one of the things I get jealous of sometimes is a robot, you know, someone who's able to just crank out 12 hours of consistent work every day. And actually, I don't really want that life. So thank you for the gift of that. Discipline is bullshit. I'm adopting that one. Take it. It's yours now. (laughs) 
So I know that folks can connect with you at your website. It's just your name.com, right? RickyGoldenberg.com. Mm-hmm. Your Instagram, LinkedIn. Are there other places that you would invite folks to connect with you? I mean, I have a newsletter that I always love for folks to hang out there. That's on my website too, which is the Learn Something Newsletter. I love, love a pun. And that's usually oftentimes the books that I'm reading. I often write about what are the learnings and things that you can take out. So like, you know, I've written about Priya Parker's Art of Gathering, some of the other books that I mentioned, actually all the other books that I've mentioned. So I love to sort of do things there that are going to give you uh, little bite-sized things that you can actually try on now. Some tips and tricks, often try to find them to be science-backed. doesn't come out very often because what is discipline? It's bullshit. But when it does, I, uh, I love writing it. I think mm. those are all the areas. Amazing. So I'll I'll link to all the places people can connect with you in the show notes, as well as the books. I, I tried to jot down all the different resources and books that people could connect with, and I'll link to all of them. And the final question that I ask in every single interview, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I would love to know in the words of Ricky, mm. what does it mean to live a meaningful life? I think it comes back to my values. I think it's allowing for curiosity. I think that's really what it is. It's like just being in it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love the the succinct ones. A lot of times are my favorite ones because does it really have to be more than that? I mean, I'm sure I could come up with some kind of long nuanced detailed philosophical answer to the question, but meaning is tricky, man. Like, I think it's just, just be in it. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Well, Ricky, incredibly grateful that you asked that you made the vulnerable, awkward reach out leap into ah. my text message inbox. And you're just such a, a joy to have a, a conversation with. So you why are. the hell would I say no? No, no, you are. You are. <laughs> this is so fun. <laughs> it was so much fun. It was. It had some really powerful insight. It had uh, lots of laughter. I love to laugh. I don't laugh quite enough. So thank you for that gift. Anytime. And I love the way that you do this dance of life. I, you know, it's one of the things I'm sitting with right now is is this discipline is bullshit. And mm-hmm. the the real ease that you seem to bring into your coaching business and your life that yeah. you're like, let's, let's just slow it down a little bit here. Like, what are we, why are we trying to produce and do these crazy things all the time? What do you like, what do you want? And can you just be okay with that? And, and holding that we are all incredibly multifaceted. I think it's, it's it's funny in a way that the book grit resonates with you that ostensibly is incredibly uh, high on discipline, right? It's like keep mm-hmm. persevering, and keep doing the thing. Yep. And I, I love that there's a, a nuance in the way that you're able to look at these things that like discipline the way that we know it is bullshit, but like there's something to sticking to doing hard things and hundred demonstrating that over a long haul that you're gonna stick to something. So I I love the kind of the duality of mm. of how you look at all these things and the levity the lightness that you bring to life and to coaching in an industry that's laden with people who are like 
trying to like keep your feet to the fire and hands on the stove and like you gotta leave it all on the table it's a breath of fresh air ricky and i'm really grateful that you were able to share this in a recorded podcast platform with me today i really needed to hear all this i love it thank you for having me this was wonderful it's such a privilege and i i really can't wait to share it out and and justin and jeremy and Josh, <laughs> if you listen to this fuck you guys <laughs> including me on your retreat. I'm like so deserving of being one of the facilitators, but you'd be so good at facilitation. Why didn't you give him a chance? Please pick me. (laughs) So I hope that for everyone who's listening, you're leaving with some lightness, some laughter that you give yourself permission to do whatever the hell you want for the rest of this day and sending you all lots of love. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's search for meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.